Uh, so it's an online bibliography, and we will be happy to send it to anybody who's interested. And also, if you have questions after the session and that, that don't get addressed or that pop into your head, I, I think we'd be willing to, to field them down the road. Uh, and so to that end, I'm going to pass around this clipboard with uh, uh, a pad, and you can go ahead and put your uh, email address on it. I've also included this handy envelope at the top, which you could just stick your business card into, as long as it's got your email address. You're going to just... My name is Bill Brewster, and I am the curator of collections for the First Infantry Division Museum at Cantini Park in Wheaton, Illinois. And you are here for the battle for Vietnam. Uh, I'm joined by two other panelists today. On the farthest end is Doug Bradley. Doug is a Vietnam veteran from Madison, Wisconsin, who has written extensively about Vietnam and post-Vietnam experiences. He was drafted into the Army in March of 1970 and served as an information specialist, and specifically as a journalist, at the Army Hometown News Center in Kansas City, Missouri, and at U.S. Army Republic of Vietnam USERV, headquarters near Saigon in Longbin, right? Following his discharge and tenure in graduate school, Doug relocated to Madison, where he helped establish Vets House, a storefront community-based service center for Vietnam-era veterans. In addition to writing a blog for the PBS website Next Avenue, Doug is the author of DROS, Vietnam, Dispatches from the Air-Conditioned Jungle, and co-author of the soon-to-be-published We Gotta Get Out of This Place, Music and the Vietnam Experience with Dr. Craig Warner, UW-Madison Professor of Afro-American Studies. The two also co-teach a popular course at UW-Madison entitled The Vietnam Era, Music, Media, and Mayhem. We're also joined by Jeff Kolath. Jeff is the Public Humanities Program Manager at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Center for the Humanities, where he works closely with advanced graduate students interested in pursuing careers outside of academia. For the 2014-2015 academic year, he is a faculty fellow with the Bradley Learning Community. A Wisconsin native, Jeff served as the Curator of History at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum from 2004 to 2012 and the Director of Museum Experience at the Milwaukee County Historical Society from 2012 to 2013. Um, I want to establish uh, our credentials for this talk. Uh, and, and assure you that you, you have a worthy panel. And again, to that end, we have Doug, uh, who is a Vietnam veteran. And, and do we have other Vietnam veterans in the audience? Okay. A few. Well, Doug, can you hold up your sign? Doug has a Vietnam veteran sign there. That's got the, the Vietnam service ribbon and the big V for veteran. That means that any time during uh, my presentation or Jeff's presentation, Doug can hold up the sign and interrupt us and overrule or contradict anything we've said. Uh, and, and if I suppose either of the veter other veterans in the room have an issue, they can point at Doug, and then Doug will also flag us with the sign, uh, and that would be fine. Um, are you gonna... Now, I want to also establish here, we first saw the picture of Doug in Vietnam verifying his service. Uh, during the Vietnam War, I was a cowboy. Uh, and that's how I spent my time. And Jeff, well, Jeff's folks were thinking they were going to have a family. Okay, so that's pretty much where we are. Next slide, please. And are you timing? You got? Okay. 
we're here to discuss a very difficult topic, uh, the Vietnam War. As most of you know, or, or should know, I think we're on uh, the verge of the 50th anniversary of the conflict, um, which for most Americans is considered to run from 1965 to 1973. Uh, but in fact, if you look at complete U.S. involvement in the war, uh, it started uh, much earlier uh, with MAG Vietnam uh, going over with the first advisory contingents in 1956 and 1957. So the war was well on its way uh, by the time of the Katankin Gulf Resolution and the escalation of combat by the introduction of Army and Marine Corps divisions in 65. Um, it's a, a conflict that has a lot of interesting facts and, and, and activities going on that involve veterans and also the technology that was at hand. It was really the first techno war, uh, as the term is coined by James Gibson in his book, uh, it's where American technology really came to the forefront in the belief that they could use it uh, in a combat effective manner uh, to destroy an enemy. Uh, this illustration from the front of a conflict map from 1966 shows two of those technologies. Obviously, the Huey helicopters uh, became prominent in, in the discussion and uh, everybody's image of the Vietnam conflict. Uh, the other piece is a hovercraft. Uh, which were used by American riverine forces uh, in the Delta during the war. Uh, it's interesting to note, um, I attended the 1964 World's Fair and the 1967 World's Fair. Uh, and in the 64 World's Fair, uh, there were helicopters. And that was a big element uh, that they displayed. And, and I could swear that I went up and that we took a helicopter ride, but apparently it was a helicopter simulator. I, I'm not exactly sure which it was. But helicopters were featured. And at the 67 World's Fair in Montreal, they had a hovercraft. And that was one of the largest attractions at the 67 World's Fair. They ran it up and down the uh, St. Lawrence River. Uh, and during the course of the, the expo, they actually transported 370,000 visitors uh, on the hovercraft. So the, the technology and the idea of that was extremely popular. Uh, but other weapon systems that came out of Vietnam uh, that really are in use to this day, the B-52 bomber, the M-16 rifle, which its current iteration is the M-4 rifle, uh, Kevlar was developed during the Vietnam War, although it didn't come into use, and motion sensors uh, were used in Vietnam, and those were still used very recently, still are used uh, in combat theaters in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, the thing to know that's really odd is the largest computer in the world was in Thailand during the Vietnam War, uh, and that was used, again, to do sensor operations along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, next slide. But the main thing that we want to think about, or the main thing that I'd like you to think about is the idea that we're, we're talking about a war that involves people. Uh, we're talking about a war from our standpoint that involves young Americans. Uh, 3.4 million of them were in theater, in the Southeast Asian theater. That includes uh, places like Thailand. It includes on ships in the South China Sea. There are 2.5 million uh, servicemen and women directly in Vietnam during the war. And as I said, these were just regular kids, right? These are 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. They were 18, 19, 20-year-olds who, who wanted to get a slushy or a soft-serve ice cream cone if they had that opportunity. Uh, they were also kids uh, who could find humor in, uh, in very dire situations. 
and I don't know if anyone can see that sign over there, but it does say uh, Mayo Brothers on it. So that's kind of our, our shout out to, uh, to Minnesota. I think that might be the only one in the talk. Um, but I want you to think about specifically with Vietnam veterans are, are several points. Uh, what we want to know is as a general rule with Vietnam veterans, uh, they went over not part as a, of an organized unit. They went over as individuals to Vietnam. Now, again, there's always exceptions to the rule, and the big exception to that is 1965 and 66, the earliest phases of the war. Uh, large units from the states did deploy in their entirety. Uh, but after 66, it was pretty much individuals who went over. Uh, similarly, uh, they came home as individuals once their tour was up. And, and you need to know a, a tour in Vietnam is one year. That's very typical. Uh, you might get people who extended another six months so they could shorten their term of service so they would be there for 18 months. Uh, but, but typically anyone who served multiple tours in Vietnam uh, wasn't a draftee, they weren't a volunteer even for uh, that short service, but typically what would be called, uh, what would they be called, Doug? Those guys who did multiple tours. Lifers, yeah, yeah. You really want to learn this terminology. You want to know that if you're planning Vietnam exhibits and interpretation down the road, it would be very helpful to get a hold of us and get that bibliography and pick up a few of the books and read it. Uh, because if you're going to engage veterans in your community, which I really hope you do, uh, it really helps and benefits you to have some information about the war, even the most basic. You're not going to need to know super details, but you want to be able to know if somebody served in I-Corps or II-Corps or III-Corps or IV-Corps, if they were in the Delta, uh, if they fought in the Rungsat Special Zone. All of these terms uh, might seem confusing, but it's very helpful to have a bit of that terminology available to you because it will help you engage uh, more thoroughly with your veterans. Uh, but as we said, uh, they're regular guys. Uh, these are just American soldiers, young American soldiers, typically 18 to 21 years old. Uh, and when you're working with veterans, next one, please, you have to be careful. You have to watch and not fall into the trap of, of, of stereotypes. And, and we've all engaged that in, in Vietnam, probably more than any other conflict, uh, is plagued by stereotypes and stereotypes of the veterans. Uh, I, I have a dear aunt um, who was an adult during the Vietnam War, and we were walking together one day. And she was talking to me about my father-in-law, who was a Vietnam veteran. And she said, well, you know, all Vietnam veterans are crazy. And, and that was just, she didn't see any, you know, that there was anything wrong with that statement. Uh, and there is a, a, a fair portion of our society, I dare say a fair portion of the people attending this conference who might have that idea in the back of their head. Uh, and it's not a fair characterization. Vietnam veterans are like any other wartime contingent or population of veterans in that when you expand an army, uh, a Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, when you expand the services to, uh, to fight in a war, you draw on a broader section of society, and so you get all the people that make up society. You, know, you get college professors, people are going to become college professors, doctors, lawyers, historians, uh, chronically unemployed people, uh, homeless people, uh, 
people with uh, different types of mental illnesses, they all end up being grabbed by the military and serving. And so you have those people, but you had those people uh, in the Civil War, you had them in World War I, you had them in World War II, and, and you have them in Vietnam. Um, so that's not anything to be ashamed of. I wish I had a picture of this T-shirt. There's, there's a great shirt out there, uh, and it says on it, Vietnam vet, don't worry, nine out of the ten voices in my head say don't pull the trigger. All right, so it, it's, it's good that some people can, can laugh a bit about their, their situation and that type of oppression or, or oppression of the group as a whole uh, that we've placed on as, as a society. Next one. What you, oh. And what we also need to remember is that in your communities, you may not only be engaging men who are in Vietnam. There were women in Vietnam serving uh, as army, with the Army Nurse Corps uh, in, uh, in clerical positions uh, and as donut dollies with the Red Cross. Uh, and you see there's uh, Jeannie Christie in there. She's the donut dolly. The other people that you very well may engage in, if, if you're from the Twin Cities area or in northern Wisconsin, you're going to engage and encounter people who are part of the indigenous populations in Vietnam, uh, whether they're uh, Vietnamese or whether they're uh, Montagnard people or Hmong, you're, and that, you know, from the Cambodian Laos, you're going to encounter these people. So, so you need to be aware of that. You need to keep an eye to it. All right. Next, next one, please. Hello. So the big thing about Vietnam, if you're working with the veterans, is it is really the last conflict where veterans were able to bring home significant souvenirs. And souvenirs, I say, can run a full range uh, from captured equipment and personal military equipment uh, all the way through letters, uh, cassettes, reel-to-reel uh, -reel tapes, uh, color slides and color photos. Uh, there's really a wealth of material out there uh, in the veteran population from Vietnam pertaining to the war. Uh, and like the 1960s, again, it's a very, it, it, there's a materialistic knowledge that young soldiers went over to Vietnam with that you don't see in previous combat or conflicts, excuse me. And so guys took pictures of their pack loads. Uh, you know, I've studied Civil War, I've studied World War I, World War II, Korea. You don't find pictures of guys showing people what was in their packs. Uh, so that's a consciousness and a focus on that type of a thing that you're not going to find, but that the veterans are going to be able to engage you with. Uh, they also like to decorate their hats. Now, it, this is something, decorating of hats and decorating of helmet covers, again, a very common occurrence during the Vietnam War. Uh, when they first, uh, when we went into Iraq, uh, there was some of that helmet decorating being done, uh, and it was squelched by the Army very, very rapidly. They did not want people writing and delivering any kind of message, regardless of the nature of it, on their helmet covers or on their hats. Uh, but Vietnam, you're going to find a, a, a variety of messages. You're going to find a variety of messages. Um, and what you have to think about is, in addition to the idea of peace, uh, the idea of, of getting home, uh, there, there's also guys who are very conscious uh, of what they were there for and why they were fighting the war. Um, it was a war. And ultimately, uh, the soldiers, the Marines, uh, the airmen, and uh, the naval personnel were there to kill the enemy. Ultimately, they were there to kill the enemy. Um, 
They incorporated music sometimes uh, on the front of, of guns, uh, but that's four machine guns. That, that, that's a weapon that, that can put some serious uh, ammunition downrange, and it would be a very effective killing weapon. But engaging the soldiers and talking to them, I guarantee you, will uh, have dividends for you in return, and you will find things that soldiers took with them to Vietnam that they still have. As I said, uh, this is a fellow from the 18th Infantry, Swamp Rats, uh, who served in 1967. Uh, and you can see he's posing with his helmet that has uh, a bullet hole through it, and then also this captured pistol rig from a North Vietnamese officer. Uh, our museum has that pistol rig in its collection. We also have the helmet in the collection uh, with the bullet hole through it. Uh, an engagement for us, because we're, we have a national scope for a museum, means reaching out. He lives on, on Long Island, and we negotiated with him for about a year before he, he decided he thought we'd be a good home for that collection, so we flew out to Long Island. And the helmet was on display in his restaurant bar, um, and... It, it was like taking a piece of that community. I mean, people were very attached to that helmet, so even as we were sitting in a bar talking to them, the community started pouring through the door, and they'd look at us, and they'd say, so are these the guys that are here to take the helmet? And so we not only had to pass the test of the veteran and his family, we had to pass the community test uh, to get that piece out. Um, but as I said, it, again, the nature of this, I mean, it's warfare. It's warfare that we're talking about, and, and warfare is incredibly ugly. And, and I do not know a single veteran who would not tell you that war is a horrible thing. And, and that is something that you can never lose sight of. Um, I, people die in war, and soldiers also have these photos. And, and we've become somewhat uh, uh, immune, I think, to the photos of dead Civil War soldiers. We've seen them for so many years presented to us. But there's a lot of photos of dead Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, and Viet Cong soldiers uh, in private collections, too. And, and, and honestly, the soldiers are embarrassed by those photos very often, uh, the fact that they took them. And yet, again, that, uh, these young men were trained to fight, and they were trained to kill, and that was part of the experience for them. This is a poster from a, uh, an exhibit that Jeff and I did together at the, at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum in 2006. Uh, called Belly of the Dragon. And when we did that exhibit, we incorporated two different types of text messaging uh, for the audience. We had a general historical text uh, that ran through the exhibit, but then we also had a, a first-person text that tried to voice the ideas and feelings and thoughts uh, that soldiers and Marines and airmen would have had in Vietnam during this, the service. Uh, and... Those were taken from uh, primarily based on a book, Dispatches, uh, that we read through and, and worked with the, uh, until we got the rhythm of how that was written, and then we put those pieces together ourselves. Uh, and the historical information, you, you know, you, you, you really probably want to avoid politics uh, in your discussion because you're going to get issues with your veteran population uh, as long as you're truthful in what you're presenting and telling, though, you're generally not going to get challenged by anybody. I mean, you know, people are always going to have issues. Uh, but as long as you're presenting a truthful version of what happened, you're going to be pretty safe. And you can touch on all the topics at that point uh, involving a conflict, whether it's Vietnam or another. But the pitfalls that are there potentially, 
Uh, this is an image of a Marine uh, near Quezon, and, and as you can see, he's holding a skull on a bayonet. Uh, and when we produced that work, in that, it was a handbill that we were sending out uh, to announce the exhibit. And I took it and I showed it to a, a, a gentleman, actually a gentleman from Minnesota who does some work with us from time to time down in Madison. And I said, hey, what do you think of this, Doug? And he looked at it and he said, well, what are you going to do with this? It makes us look like baby killers. And I said, well, why do you say that? And he said, well, you got, you got a guy posing with a skull there. People are going to think, and that feeds back into the stereotypes and how the guys have felt and the types of reception they received at different times through the years. Um, and, and so when we put it together and explained the exhibit and he saw the exhibit, he, was, he said, okay, yeah, this makes sense. But again, those are the things that are potentially going to happen with you. Next one, please. And right now, the thing you're ultimately going to remember is the goal of every Vietnam veteran was to get on the Freedom Bird and fly home, right? That was the one thing they wanted to do was to get home. And the last thing I can leave you with right now is if you are having a really hard time finding veterans, just watch for the sales, all right? You can give them cheap sometimes. Can everyone see that? Okay. All right, well, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> I thought we were uh, And we've got Jeff going next. Thank you. Well, thanks for having us here today. Um, I should give a little bit of background in that. I attended the school of Brewster for eight years, 2004 to 2012, and I'm still attending the school of Bradley, also starting in 2005. Um, these are the two, these two gentlemen are really why I'm passionate about what I'm going to talk about today, while I hold Vietnam veterans in such high regard, and while I love to tell the story of the Vietnam War, and why I think that there's so many different ways to do it. And there's also a course I took in um, undergrad at University of Wisconsin La Crosse, which I'm happy to discuss later, but it's, uh, but it's played some very, also a very key role in what we're going to talk about today. Good. So, Working for an academic institution, I feel like I have to read you something that I wrote since I work with faculty and faculty deliver papers. So I will deliver a very short uh, passage here that I wrote uh, the other day. In April 2015, it will be 40 years since the last American helicopter left the embassy in Saigon. Since then, historians, filmmakers, musicians, writers, museum curators, politicians, peace activists, and veterans have all taken a stab at interpreting this divisive and confusing conflict. However, unlike the relatively easy narratives of the Civil War and World War II, there is no one correct interpretation of the Vietnam War. Although, in my opinion, Francis Ford Coppola, John Melius, Bruce Springsteen, Carl Marlantes, and Neil Sheehan have all come very, very close to, to getting it right. Because there is so much gray, the memory of the war has been used, abused, and remains muddled. As we enter the 50th anniversary of the combat operations of Vietnam, and we will be seeing a forthcoming Ken Burns documentary about the war in 2017, public interest in the conflict will likely be on the rise, providing museums with an opportunity to plan Vietnam-themed programming. What role can museums play in bridging the divides that still exist? How can we create a safe space for the veteran population to share their personal wartime experiences while still creating programming that engages the civilian population? What can we learn from the Vietnam era that is still relevant today? Which community partners or affinity groups might you actively collaborate with? Today we'll talk about these things. Uh, Sorry, got a call. Excellent. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. coming in with a chopper and you scare the hell out of the gooks or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's 
BS. Mm-hmm. So uh, that makes, that's a long way from, from the truth. So uh, they really miss the mark there. Because you know, when you come in the shop, VC are not going to be afraid, I, I guarantee you, of uh, Rise Rock Valkyries. Absolutely. So you want to come in quick, get in quick, and get the hell out of there. Artistic, well, yes. Artistic okay. license with that. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, right. Um, so... But thank you for bringing that up because you, you brought up a point that I'll talk about at the very, very end. So, um, so today, I'll talk about three types of community partners that I've worked with over the years, that Bill has worked with, that I've worked with in other institutions, and just kind of give some ideas of the types of the programming that we've done with those organizations, and then we'll hit, if you have questions at the end, we'll go from there. So the first one, an obvious one, are the veterans themselves, veterans organizations, um, and this photo really emphasizes one of the things I love about this war, or love talking about this war, and that is sort of, and what makes it such a challenge, but such a great challenge, is this photo right here, which is hard to see. I apologize for the light. We have our good friend Steve Piotrowski giving us the peace sign. We have a gentleman down here giving us the finger. Um, and, that in, and that is sort of very much represents some of the past experiences I've had, too, which is very welcoming, very good experiences, and also very challenging experiences, too. Um, but it also is what makes it such a, such a rewarding experience in the very end. Uh, working with VS, VSOs, veteran service organizations, the American Legion, VFW, Vietnam Veterans of America, motorcycle groups. Uh, Vietnam veteran motorcycle associations I've worked with on various occasions, and unaffiliated veterans, too, unaffiliated veterans. There are a number of unaffiliated veterans out there that are equally as interested in getting involved and helping out and wanting to share stories. The veterans community, this is a very important thing, the veterans community is not monolithic. There's a ton of nuance in that photo right there. There's a lot of nuance in there. What works for one veterans group or one, one veteran will not work for another or work for another veterans group. So there's always... Some, there's always details in all of those stories, and there's always things to sort of know your audience, know the crowd that you're working with. Um, making friends, being social, um, meeting them on their turf, meeting them in VFW halls, Legion halls, meeting them in places where they're comfortable. Don't always make them come to you. Go to them, just like any type of partnership or collaboration that you do. Um, and then creating a core group where trust is mutual. If they trust you and you trust them, you can work, you can move forward, and you can really tell some great stories, and you can do some fantastic programming. Uh, they're fantastic as initial contacts. A lot of the work that Bill has done over the years with artifacts and doing material culture stuff, one veteran leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. It's the same way with doing programming, too. Um, Event planning, offsite programming, fundraising, working with a couple of the VFW posts that I have in, 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 in past years. Just looking to get involved, looking to be able, looking for ways to share stories, looking for ways to get the word out about what they do as an organization too. So sharing missions, uh, um, sharing a mission for for a particular project. There's lots of other there's lots of traveling exhibits and things that are around that are available. But the three three of the big ones are the scale sized replicas of the Vietnam Memorial Wall in D.C. There's the moving wall, the wall that heals, and the traveling wall. I think I've worked with all three of them at one point in time or another. Um, those are all very good um, ways to engage with the veterans community. A lot of times there is a VFW or Legion post in your area that might be trying to bring that there. It's a great opportunity for you to get out and meet the veterans population, to collect stories if you do oral histories, and also to possibly you know, bring in artifacts and, get, and just build, build interest and audience for your institution. Uh, community partner for granting purposes, letters of support. So sort of the why the why aspect. Um, a lot of the veterans that, we've that I've worked with, Doug included, and some of our other friends back in Madison, this is a, this is a 
watershed major moment in their lives, their military service. So there is a lot of identity and a lot of meaning built up during their time in the service, whether it be one year, whether it be two years, whether it be for a 25 years and they retired out, it's still an important part of their lives even after they've gotten out of the service. So they're willing to share that story. They're willing to, willing to work with you. Um, they're also a lot of times seeking the why. There, there's a lot of questions, especially about the Vietnam War, which Bill talked about, that are still unanswered and, frankly, will probably remain unanswered for a significant period of time. Um, so there's a lot of idea, um, bringing veterans in where we, at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum where we had scholars from all over the world come in and talk about the Vietnam War, able to take their firsthand experiences serving, serving in Vietnam and hearing a scholar talk about their research and being able to put those two things together, providing the context, giving them the grounding, helping them understand why they were in that particular place at a particular time, why they had a certain type of rifle and not another type of rifle. There's all of those little nuanced things that we can't necessarily understand as civilians, but that the veterans understand and hearing some, some of those affirmed or looking for those reasons why out of DOD documents, Library of Congress things, it's all it all comes together. This idea of continued service, uh, wanting to share stories, honor their friends and comrades, still staying involved and still wanting to, uh, to, to uh, make sure that people are aware of their service and sacrifice. And then the last two are, are sort, of the, um, sort of go together, is that in the end, a lot of folks really do want their story to be told. And through donations, through participating in veterans panels, which I'll talk about, Again, it's, this is an important part of their lives, so it's this idea of wanting their story told. But there's also what their story is doesn't, again, doesn't necessarily represent everybody else's story, too. So I call this the, we didn't have that when I was there, um, which is started from a one photo on a postcard that we sent out to promote a program that we were doing of a group of guys, young men serving in Vietnam on R&R, on one of the beaches in South Vietnam, on one of the few moments that they had out of the battlefield, and they're drinking Ham's beer on the beach. And they're in their swimming trunks, and they're looking, they're, they're, they're very happy to be there. And showed that to a group of uh, a, a friend of ours at the museum, and he showed it to some of his friends. And while they appreciated what we were doing and what we were trying to communicate with it, the question that came back is, well, we didn't have hams when I was there. We had Miller, Budweiser, Falstaff, Grain Belt, whatever else was available that came in on the chopper. So even down to the type of beer that, that they had in Vietnam, there still was this, we didn't have that when I was there. So it's always, again, there's, it's always up for discussion. But again, the more you know, the more you begin to understand, the more trust you build up. Those are all conversations that you, that you can have and really uh, create some great programming that comes out of it. Um, veterans in the classroom working with secondary schools. Um, one of the things that we learned was that a lot of secondary schools, is, at least in our area in Wisconsin and I'm sure in other parts of the country too, actually don't get, some of them might not get to Vietnam at all and if they do it's really not until 11th or 12th grade. But in our area there's a couple smaller schools that actually touched on the Vietnam War through their English class or through their literature classes. And obviously there's an incredible amount of great stuff that has been written about the war, fiction, historic, or historical fiction, true fiction, or, or in some instances poetry too. So what we did is that we created a really strong relationship with a couple area schools where they would do the literature aspect of it but they came to us for the history side and they came to us for the context. So we were providing the background that the, that the English teachers didn't have, in most instances did not have, but also didn't necessarily have time to work into their regular lesson plans and in their, in their courses. So a couple of things about, about that, 
And I'm sure all of you that do education and do tours, pre-visit materials. Pre-visit materials are absolutely crucial because when working with freshmen in high school, most of them didn't know where Vietnam was. So that was something that took about five or 10 minutes out of the time we had. And once we got past all of those things, we were able to move on. So um, just the basic stuff, when the war started, roughly when it ended roughly, uh, the number of people that served, the branches, the main, the main points, the timeline, all those basic things that you can get out of the way before they come to your institution and you can talk about it. Um, providing programming that only museums can, and you have a young woman here looking at a very powerful object from the Veterans Museum's collection, which is uh, a, ha a helmet and a pair of boots worn by a um, Navy chaplain who served at Quezon, and the boots still have the mud of Quezon still on them from when he left Vietnam in 1968. And the helmet itself is just a wonderful piece too. So, um, so providing programming, object-based learning, reading an object, material culture type pieces, uh, or material culture type exercises. The other thing to remember is if these are, if you're working with young people and they're, and like Bill talked about, there are young people serving in Vietnam, 18, 19 years old. A lot of times it's the first time they ever left, not, not just left the country, but left their state, left their hometown, left their county. So keeping that in mind, this is, a lot of ways, Bill talked about souvenirs. They're documenting their experiences when they're able to, like almost like tourists in a lot of ways. They're taking pictures of the countryside. They're taking pictures of their friends. They're taking, if they're young men, they're take, a lot of them are taking pictures of girls. So there's all of those things that you can weave into a narrative about the war to work with young learners to show them that these guys are not much different than you. Not only are you close in age, but you're also close in the things that you're interested in. So photos, the photos that I, I'm always, that I always were draw, was drawn to and that I always hold near and dear are the ones of of those casual things. Hanging out in the bunks, listening to music, if you were able to do that. Um, countryside, a lot of pictures of dogs. Guys had pets over there too. Pet monkeys, pet, do uh, pet dogs, mongooses, mongoose, mongooses um, for, for pets too. So, and then the other thing, uh, quickly I'm uh, prattling on here, um, using veterans panels to educate young learners about the Vietnam War. It sort of ties into the first topic, working with veterans groups. They're a fantastic way to get true, real, true information about the war to young learners in a first-hand way, talking about experiences. There's ways to do, we've done general ones, we've done themed ones, women, uh, women veterans, Army Aviation, Latino veterans. Um, it's a really great way to learn about the war, what, learn what happened during the war through the eyes and past experiences of, of those who served. Um, again, developing trust with your veteran audience, working with them closely. Um, and they, they will eventually, in, our, in my experience, the group that we had at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum, they moderated themselves. They didn't need an outside moderator to do it in a lot of ways. But it's also really important to prep the young learners and prep the audience for this experience and prep them to not ask the question, did you ever kill anyone? Um, that question will get asked, so it's always important to make sure that, that things like that are cleared because it's still something that most, most veterans never want to talk about again. Next one. You can skip to the last one, actually. This one right here. <clears throat> okay, last group of partners, cultural partners. Um, public radio, public television, state humanities councils. Um, working with them on a variety of projects over the years. Are anybody, is anybody from California here today? Um, Cal Humanities has a wonderful program. They just started with uh, Vietnam veteran author Carl Malantes in his second book called What Is It Like? What It Is Like to Go to War. It's a 
working with public libraries across the state. I think there's 42 public libraries in the state of California that are all reading this book at the same time. Marlantes is giving lectures. They're creating original curriculum. They're doing a lot of web-based stuff. So there's still an opportunity there to engage wider audiences with the Vietnam War, again, through some of these, some more cultural means using fiction, uh, poetry, that type of thing. Uh, support for traveling exhibitions and other types of things that can come in. And then the big one with regards to culture, music, literature, poetry, that type of thing, the war impacts the culture, and, war, and culture impacts the war. You can't separate those two things. What was happening in Vietnam at that time, the young men that were over there, they were listening to Sly and the Family Stone before they went to Vietnam, and they were likely listening to Sly and the Family Stone when they were in Vietnam, and vice versa. It goes back and forth. So you cannot separate those things. So what's influencing culture on the state side is also influencing culture, or influencing culture over there. So that's why, I know, I know. That's, I'm just getting the music part to lead into Doug. So that's why um, music is a really fun, exciting, and wide-reaching uh, wide way to work with the veterans population and also to bring the civilian population into the, uh, into, into the discussion, too. They're listening to Sly and the Family Stone in Vietnam. They're listening to it at home. There's a common bond there. There's a way to talk about that. Everybody knows the songs. Some, those that served in Vietnam might have a different way to interpret it than somebody that never went overseas, but there are still, there's still that common ground there to discuss the impact and the uh, um, and, and the meaning of those songs. And this is a poster from a program we did based on that lovely box set right there from Bear Family Records. Uh, came out in 2010, worked at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, local radio stations. We had former music, we had musicians, Clyde Stubblefield, James Brown's original funky drummer. Lives in Madison now, played with James Brown in, in Vietnam in 1968. So if you saw the new James Brown biopic, you saw somebody playing the role of Clyde Stubblefield. Um, Clyde was there. William Bell, who recorded with Stax Records, was an Army veteran, uh, wrote uh, two songs about the war, recorded them in 66 and 67. So it was a wonderful three-day event. Lots of different things going on. So, in conclusion, the three things and sort of the call to action. Embracing the challenge of doing Vietnam programming. I brought up Apocalypse Now and the, and the, veteran, and the, and the gentleman in the back who served with the 1st Infantry Division disagreed with me already about Apocalypse Now. That's great that he disagreed with me about it. Everyone, not everyone will agree. Chaos is okay to about this stuff. War is chaotic. Discussing it is chaotic. It's okay, but just create a safe, honest space for conversation. That's really what's important. Be able to share everybody's feelings in a warm, respectful, and confident way. Engaging with the veterans community. I've gotten yelled at more times than I can count, but it's okay. It's okay. It's still a great experience. It's a wonderful thing to work with the veterans community. Doug has yelled at me. It's okay. But it's still something that it, it's part of going through it, but in the end, it's all worth it because, again, building trust, sharing those stories, and telling stuff in an honest and open way. And then the last one, the rewards always outweigh the risks when doing Vietnam programming or Vietnam exhibits. Getting it close. You might never actually get it right, but you can get it close. And the important thing to always remember is because there's no one way to interpret this war, um, museums can offer their own new interpretations based on your collections and based on the veterans in your area or based on larger narratives too, So, which is a very exciting thing to think about when you're com contemplating Vietnam programming. Thank you. Doug. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here. I'm too honored to be part of this panel, and I think uh, teaming up with Jeff and, and Bill 
and hopefully with you in the Q&A, I think speaks to the theme of the conference, and that is uh, greater than the sum of our parts. 43 years ago, I was an information specialist for the U.S. Army in Long Bin, Vietnam. That was the first year of President Nixon's Vietnamization program uh, by which we were ostensibly turning the ground war over to our South Vietnamese allies. For those of us in Vietnam at the time, we translated that into nobody wants to be the last GI killed in Vietnam. If ever there was a time when soldiers just sort of caught their breath in Vietnam, it was 1971. That spring, my military newspaper, The Army Reporter, assigned me to write a story about the U.S. Navy, something unique and different for an Army newspaper. So I spent four days on the USS Ranger in the Gulf of Tonkin, interviewing everyone from ensigns to admirals about their role in the war and how what they were doing was supporting those of us in the mainland. I even got to fly on a bombing mission. I was relegated to the fuel plane. And I have to say that taking off and landing on an aircraft carrier is about the most exciting thing I've ever done. Um, but I wasn't able to sleep in the tightly controlled and confined space on a carrier, so I'd lie awake at night in my claustrophobic bunk, listening to the sound of sailors rolling bombs up and down the corridor in preparation for the next day's missions. I doubt if it was the same guys every night uh, who were on duty, but they sang the same song, and I could hear it underneath the rubble, the rumble of the bombs. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and this, as the flames went higher, and it burns, 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 the ring of fire, the ring of fire. To this day, every time I hear that Johnny Cash song, I'm back on that damn aircraft carrier. For those who watched the Vietnam War unfold on the evening news, the music of the Vietnam era blurred with the sounds rising from the streets of America during a time of challenge and change. For those born after the last helicopter sank beneath the waves of the South China Sea, movies and miniseries have repeatedly presented Vietnam as one part of an era defined by its music. But for the men and women who served in Southeast Asia, Jeff has already alluded to this, music was what linked them, us, to our generation. We sang along to the Beatles, Aretha Franklin, and Temptations before we went to war, and we listened to them after we came back home. But music was more than just background for Vietnam veterans. It was our sustenance, a link to life back in the world, the purest way of connecting with the things that enabled us to keep on keeping on. From the peaks of the Central Highlands to the rice paddies of the Mekong Delta to the air-conditioned jungles of Da Nang and Long Bin, where I was, soldiers used music to form bonds, express their feelings, and hold on to the humanity the world was trying to take away. That's what my colleague UW Madison Professor Craig Werner and I have discovered in conversations with hundreds of Vietnam veterans. We're in the process of publishing our book, We Gotta Get Out of This Place, which tells the story of the Vietnam War through the music-based memories of those who were there. Male and female, black, white, Native American, and Latino, from the Northeast and the Deep South, the Midwest, Rocky Mountains, and California. Combat soldiers and support troops, the former known as grunts, the latter, guys like me, known as REMFs, R-E-M-F, pardon my French, rear echelon motherfucker. Strangely, while music is every day, is everywhere in the movies, memoirs, and novels about Vietnam, no treatment has placed music at the center of the soldier veteran experience. Our hope is that we gotta get out of this place, we'll fill the gap, and serve as a gateway into a truer, deeper story of what Vietnam meant and continues to mean. 
What's emerged so far is a mosaic, a collective story of sacrifice, struggle, and survival. It's an intensely individual story because no two Vietnam experiences are the same. Yet it's also a profoundly political story, but where the politics are actual, not ideological. At its core, Vietnam, borrowing from a term of Ralph Ellison's, was a blues experience, attempt, as Ellison said, quote, to finger the jagged grain of a brutal experience and to transcend it, not by the consolation of philosophy, but by squeezing from it a near tragic, near comic lyricism. Now I'd like to introduce you to a few of the Vietnam veterans who inhabit our musical mosaic. Say hello to Jim Kurtz. Jim was raised in Madison, Wisconsin and attended the University of Wisconsin Law School on an ROTC scholarship. Graduated in 1965, he had to fulfill his active duty commitment. By June of 66, Jim was in Vietnam, a captain of the 1st Infantry Division, trying to keep himself and his men alive. This is his song. We have to go in and out, unfortunately, the presentation. Track one, yep. You'll recognize this, I think. No, that's number five. Wrong song. men who jump and die, men who mean just what they say, the brave men of the Green Beret. You cut it there. You cut it there. You ready to march around the room? These are men, America's best. Sergeant Barry Sadler, uh, Ballad of the Green Berets, believe it or not, with all the other music that was out during that time in, in 1965-66, this was the song of the year. Um, here's Jim's words. I thought I wanted to be a hero, and Vietnam was the place to be heroic. That's what the Ballad of the Green Berets song said. It was kind of like on Wisconsin. We were going to march through the country, win the game, save the day. I don't feel so good about all that now because of what I saw and what I know. And the song is a bunch of nonsense, especially the end where the father dies and asks his wife to put the silver wings on his son's chest. It's nonsense. Meet Butch Sotonia. Butch grew up in a working class neighborhood in Racine, I'm sorry, in Rockford, Illinois. Like a lot of his buddies, he was drafted in the Army in 1966. But unlike most of them, he volunteered to go to Vietnam. I was bored, he admitted. I wanted to go where the action was. He got his wish. Butch was assigned as a stevedore, or as he calls it, a shotgun rider at Cameron Bay in 1967 and 68. As he says, it was quite a trip. Here's his song.
A few bars of that song takes Butch back to Cameron Bay, to being young and scared and sometimes stoned. But it also reminds him of a nation he fought to preserve, one whose flag he holds in his arms. Yes, what you see Butch holding is a South Vietnamese flag. As he explains it, one night I was working on the night shift, listening to White Rabbit. I, did this climb up on, I decided to climb up on the superstructure. He climbed all the way up, shimmied to the top of the flagpole, and managed to unhook the flag, bring it on down, tuck it inside his jungle shirt, and get off the ship before the captain woke up the next morning. The next day, I sent it home. And now when I look at it, I think, here's this flag that so many guys gave their life for, and the darn country doesn't even exist anymore. Say hello to Steve Piotrowski, who you saw earlier in that shot. He's a little older now. We all get a little older. Um, Steve was a radio telephone operator attached to the 173rd Infantry Brigade in 1969 and 1970. He grew up in a small town in central Wisconsin where his options were few. So at 19, he was a soldier in Vietnam. Steve was one of the first vets to remind us that, quote, there was no music in the field. In situations where absolute silence could mean the difference between life and death, he said, no one was going to add extra weight to their pack by carrying along a tape deck or a guitar. But when he got to the rear, Steve and his fellow grunts would listen to tapes they borrowed from Rems like me. This is one of their favorite songs because, as Steve points out, Blood, Sweat, and Tears had a lot of very appropriate Vietnam songs, lots of death and dying. Meet Linda McClanahan, a native of Berkeley, California. Linda was a WAC, Women's Army Corps, communication specialist stationed at Long Bend in 1969 and 1970. Today, she's known as Sister Sarge, as a result of her becoming a nun with the Order of St. Dominic in Racine, Wisconsin, where she works as a trauma counselor for veterans and their families. People need to really understand what war is like, she says, how insane it is, how it brings out the best and worst in people that you can't fight war in a neat little moral box. You can't do it. Here's Linda's song. I should say it's getting started. This is also known as the Vietnam Vets National Anthem. Girl, you're so young and free. And one 
Here it comes. Linda recalls hearing that song played tons of times, repeatedly in enlisted men clubs, officers clubs, as she says, draftees, officers, lifers, enlistees, everyone, everyone listened to that song. And as I said, it's probably no surprise that that's been identified as the Vietnam Vets National Anthem, and it's the song that comes up the most in our conversations with Vietnam Vets. Say hello to Will Williams. Growing up in rural Mississippi, Will harbored a lot of hatred for the injustices he saw. My mother and grandmother warned me that I wouldn't live to be 21, he said. The same thing will happen to you that happened to Emmett Till, they told him. Will ended up doing two tours in Vietnam, both with the Army's 2nd Battalion, 27th Infantry Division at Coochie between 1966 and 1969. He happily recalls singing doo-wop with his fellow GIs at base camp during his earliest days in country before the tunnels underneath Coochie brought death and danger into their midst. That was good early on, but after one of the guys was killed, the singing stopped, he admits. Will himself took grenade frags to the head and has suffered from PTSD for more than 40 years. One thing that has kept him going and helped with his healing has been music. You know, as an aside, one of the more interesting things about that song, it's Will's and it belongs to others too, is that Marvin Gaye wrote that song and made that album about his brother Frankie's experiences in Vietnam. Marvin was moved and troubled by what Frankie saw in Vietnam and what he had to deal with when he got back. So one of the greatest songs and albums ever created has a leitmotif that is particularly powerful and illuminating for Vietnam vets. The set list goes on and on, and in some ways so does the war. We need to bring these vets and thousands of others like them home, finally. Music is one of the best ways we can do that. 
And I just want to say that writing can do that too. I've been a member of a veteran-centered writing group, the Deadly Writers Patrol, aptly named. There were copies of the magazine in the back of the room. They're free for you to take. Um, I've been in that group for many years, and I know, frankly, if I hadn't been uh, a member of the Deadly Writers Patrol, I probably never would have finished my collection of short stories because the guys made sure that I got it done. And, you know, writing is just another one of those ways that you can process the experience, you can try to make sense of it, um, and like I said, we supported one another. I wouldn't have gotten my book done. And writing is just is, is something else I think you ought to think about. Uh, memoir, fiction, poetry, music, um, these are ways that can help. So now, enough from me, enough from us. We want to hear from you, so we want to have your questions. Thanks. And we have a mic in the back. Wait for the mic, please. Yeah, because they're recording this, so they want to. Thanks. I have just a couple of points for people thinking about this, I hope. Boy, it brings back memories. Um, one would be to make sure you're including conscientious objectors if you're looking at Vietnam programming, because the whole concept of conscientious objection changes during Vietnam from strict religion to philosophy. Uh, becomes much easier. You don't have to be a medic in a hospital. You, can, you don't have to leave home. Um, so there's a whole other sort of part of this of the people who didn't go. Um, what happens with the draft? I would say that the end of the graduate school deferment for the draft, um, what kept Dick Cheney out forever and ever and ever, <laughs> um, opened up graduate schools for women. When I entered my graduate, pro draft, graduate school draft ends in 1968. The draft deferment ends in 68. And when I started graduate school in 1969, my professors were very clear that we were there as women because the men were in Vietnam. And the only men in my class were 4F, which students don't even know what that means anymore, <laughs> um, or veterans. One guy our age turned out to, years later, have been gay. So that's how he wasn't in Vietnam at the time. So I think that's a really important part. Who had to go, who could get out of going, and how that changes during the Vietnam War uh, is very, very important. And the whole concept of the draft, which for those of us who had brothers, boyfriends, husbands who had to deal with the draft, Today, I think for my students, the draft was, well, if I want federal student loan, I have to register for the draft, and that's all it means. So that was a much, much more important thing, and it defined people's lives 50 years ago. And um, I hope that you know, people will keep those kinds of things in consideration. It's, it's much more than just the anti-war movement. It, it opens up graduate school for women long before affirmative action. There are a lot of us who wouldn't be here if our boyfriends and classmates hadn't had to go to Vietnam. And it's a, you know, they didn't want to go, we didn't want them to go. Um, but women benefited from it, I think, all over the country. And that's a story that really hasn't been told, so. Thank you for that comment. Actually, to talking about the draft, um, one of the activities that we came up with at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum was a draft lottery activity to try to explain what that meant. Um, because again, for kids today, selective service is just something you turn 18, you sign up for selective service. When I turned 18, they sent razors, send us razors in the mail, and that's sort of like the official, you're in selective service now. So it's a much 
trying to explain that draft light, we came up with, a, a, with a, an activity with all the different classifications for being 1A, 4F, what that meant. Um, what your draft number was, Doug, what was your draft number? 85. 85. Sir, what was your draft number? Oh, okay. So, that's true. so a lot of a lot of veterans, for, again from the later years, will remember their draft numbers too. So it's a, definitely a, a good conversation point and something to really bring up with students in in some exciting ways. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just want to share a, a story. I interviewed a number of veterans with a Vietnam veteran for a book on veterans from my county in Maryland, and uh, you talked about how they went over alone coming back. Uh, one of the veterans talked about hearing what was going on in the states and he said you know i survived my year my tour of duty and he said i'm not going to come home and you know be spit on or be attacked or something he rode home on an airliner with his carry-on bag in his lap with a 45 and a hand grenade and you know think about that with uh, you know the veterans coming home today how they're welcomed in airports you know, this man was afraid of being attacked so the thing i would also offer is uh, these veterans need to be welcomed home something you hear. Uh, they need to be welcome home to our institutions. So if that's something you can do, that heals some of that. Uh, I was just going to share something about a conversation I had in oh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I work at the National Archives. And we had a meeting with some of the folks in the, the National Vietnam Commemoration Committee. And one man said, basically what they're trying to do in this is to, um, I think the phrase they used were, honor the heroes. And he said, we're going to avoid all that political stuff. And so something that you said quickly, I realize, uh, you said, well, I'd avoid all that political stuff. And I find myself wondering if we're doing anybody really a service by avoiding that political stuff. And the Vietnam War raised incredibly important questions about politics and race and class. And I think it really is our obligation to talk about that kind of, kind of material. As everybody said here in a civil, open, conversational way, you know, I don't want to go back to screaming around the dinner table, believe me. <laughs> no, and, and again, I, we completely agree with you. And that the, the idea, though, is you can address it all within context because it's all legitimate. They're all legitimate topics, whether it's uh, conscientious objectors, uh, the, the idea of women getting into grad school. Uh, the political issues of the day are absolutely valid and, and points that you can and make can make and should make within the context of exhibit. So yeah, we, we completely agree. I, I have to say that this last part in particularly really resonated with me with the music and the, and the personal stories. I married a Vietnam veteran. He was a Green Beret Airborne, um, Hill 875, all that. And he has not been one of those vets that's been willing to discuss, talk, share, be in a veterans panel. He certainly would have the experiences, but that's the, ch we're doing a, a 60s exhibit at our museum right now, and of course this story has to be told. 
but I find a lot of the Vietnam veterans in our county very, very reluctant to be on stage, be interviewed, because they think that somehow they're being, it isn't that they don't want to be honored, but they don't want to be honored, because they survived, and all those people and brothers that were with them didn't, and so there is an honoring that I'm not quite sure how to do, and maybe it, I'm personally involved with it, so therefore I'm a little more sensitive than I should be as an educator, but I'm, I'm struggling with how to tell this story yeah. without putting them on the spot. Well, I, um, that, that's a terrific point, and, and um, I want to mention that, you know, that's really how we sort of happened on music, because we didn't go into people, and you, I mean, you just don't spend five minutes with, with any, anybody, or let alone a Vietnam vet, and say, well, what song really spoke to you, and nice meeting you, thanks for your service. Now, I mean, I spent nights, even, you know, like hours and hours and hours with these guys and, um, and women and their spouses who maybe never heard this story or their kids that never, never heard this. But it was just sort of like it was around the music. And they found that talking about the music enabled them to talk about the experience. Um, but you're right. Then the step from doing that, they had to trust me, had me in their home, in their living room or, or, or someplace having coffee. But then to get up in front of a group and say something, um, it's not going to happen a lot. But I think it's it's worth the effort. I think I think your sensitivity um, is 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 going to help because you're respectful. You want to listen. You don't want to tell them, "Well, you're going to do this, and this is the part, the role you're going to play." I think that can work. And I think finding other ways, maybe it's um, um, you know it's through some of the the programming that's going to be coming out. I know public television and public radio are doing a lot right now around this new group of veterans, but as you know, that sort of becomes elastic, and when we hear the term veteran, we start to think about our service, we start to think about our experiences. Um, so I, I can keep trying to find those, the, the right kind of relationships, the right kind of partnerships, that kind of trusting environment, but maybe, maybe music some night, a program around the music, you know, might be the kind of thing that would bring it out. I really appreciated your remarks, the lady in front of me wearing black who just spoke about absences and silences, because I think that that is one of the hardest things to interpret, whether in a program or in an exhibit or even in everyday life. I, I work in Seattle at a history museum there. And, um, you know, the stories that we're interested, the narrative that you're probing is an international narrative, a national narrative, but it's also extremely local. All of the institutions represented in this room have their own unique lens on this larger story that you've told in Seattle, um, the airlift um, and the huge surge in our Laotian, Cambodian, and Vietnamese populations dates from um, the, the early and mid-70s. And there are a lot of absences and silences um, in that community about those experiences. And the only strategy that we've found that is at all useful, and it's certainly not a home run, is partnerships and collaborations with the Wing Luke Asian Museum and, and other, um, other groups. This is a smaller point, perhaps, than others are making. But I do think that um, the aftermath of the war in Vietnam, which at least in my small place, in my local story, dramatically changed the look and feel and sound of Seattle, that that's a part of the Vietnam story as well. 
um, being that you're both from institutions that focus on veterans and, and war and everything, um, I'm wondering if you've had experiences and how you've dealt with them um, regarding veterans who've had trouble um, visiting your galleries. Someone very near to me, um, I, I grew up just down the road from the First Division Museum, so I know it well, and he has a lot of trouble in your very accurate, immersive Vietnam space. And I was wondering what experiences you may have had with that and maybe what resources you're ready to help. <laughs> well, there's not really any resources available within the museum context, and that, you know, the, the, that, that's a really good question. Um, well, you'd have to come to our museum to, to see what we do, and it's, it's, it's typically, uh, it's odd that we get a lot of family visitation, usually, to our, our museum, and then we also get a, a fair proportion of veterans through, and uh, very many of them are First Infantry Division. We do have a veteran on staff, so if, if we ever had an issue where somebody came out, he would be ready to, to, to step forward and address it. Um, but what we found in Madison, um, actually we, we did a, a, an, a, an exhibit on um, uh, called Faces in the Sand, which was about the current conflict. When, what year is that, Jeff? On oh, 09. Um, and we found that uh, f they were bringing uh, veterans with PTSD uh, current conflict veterans with PTSD out to Madison to tour the exhibit uh, because uh, they came with their counselors. Uh, and, and some of them, you know, it, it was a good experience, but some of them we had, we had people leaving the exhibit at times. Um, so it, that is always going to be a challenge, and I definitely think that if you're in a, uh, if, if it is a temporary exhibit and you're not a, a, a military or a war-focused museum, which I know that probably no one else here is, uh, it, it might be worth considering how you would be able to handle that as far as having people available and work with your local veterans counseling services. But that's, that's what I've got. Yeah. Or actually, Mark was over there and then over here. As someone who's been interested in military history my whole life but, but hasn't served it strikes me that the best way to talk to military history to a non, an audience that doesn't uh, frequent military museums is stories of people. But putting that aside, um, there are multiple perspectives from veterans and from academics on the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the tenets of interpretation is for people to get a meaning, you have to honor multiple perspectives. The Smithsonian tried to do that with the infamous Enola Gay exhibit, and, and not even getting into the, the politics of that. They tried to honor multiple perspectives, and it blew up in their face. Uh, for many people, uh, 50 years is not a lot of time, and these, it, these memories are very fresh, and it, it reminds me a lot of some of the, the, the history versus memory stuff. So putting aside how the techniques of using personal stories with everything from it was a war of national liberation and we can never win to the merits of Westmoreland versus Abrams, so on and so forth, can we truly honor and tell these stories at, at going beyond the, the, the individual stories to that broader perspective without falling into the, the, the same trap? Was that a question? Oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> I didn't realize. Who wants to answer that question? 
Ginny. Yeah, to respond to you to Mark's question. Um, I worked with the ITOW, in their own words, Veterans Museum in Perm, Minnesota. And how we answered that question was the, we decided we would only tell what the veterans were saying. So we're not doing any editorializing with it. Um, we're letting people go, the exhibits are designed so that they go through and they hear what people are actually saying. And we even have, a, an, a, there was a, even an exhibit designed about the Vietnam protests. So there we interviewed people who were on both sides of the protest line, set it up like that. So you stood on either side of the protest line, um, heard about that. And while and you asked a question about how people deal with it, we did always have veterans on staff, you know, as volunteers, so that if it was difficult material, you know, there was somebody they could talk to. There was like a shoulder they could cry on if necessary. Um, but I think that was important that there wasn't anybody there, uh, especially myself, that was trying to take a, an opinion, but just to let the veterans tell their story in their own words. I'm painfully shy and I've never talked into a microphone before, so please forgive me. I, I'm coming at this from several perspectives. I'm the daughter of a disabled Vietnam vet. I'm a USO volunteer and I'm also a librarian and an archivist. So I wanna kind of throw this all into the salad here. Uh, we can't overlook the veterans who are either physically, mentally, or emotionally incapable of getting themselves to places where they can meet with other veterans and, and family members of veterans. Some of them are in veterans hospitals for long periods of time or they're homebound. Uh, I know from spending many years with my father in and out of hospitals and he was one of the lucky ones. He had a really supportive family and network of friends. And I never, you know, I, and I started going to visit him as a child. So I was seeing stuff that was pretty shocking to me that not all veterans hospitals are as well run as others. So you're exposed to things that you may not be in other hospitals. Um, and some of these men are in need of not just someone to talk to, but basic necessities like toiletries or a nice clean, warm pair of socks. I, I mean, I'm not trying to play the violin here, but that's the kind of family that I come from. And my mom and I made sure that whatever, and we're not coming from a family with money, <laughs> but whatever we were able to bring to my dad, he was sharing with other guys. And we started to put things together to bring into them. My dad was diabetic, so I'd make dozens of sugar-free cookies and bring them in. Just the smallest touches of home meant so much to these guys. So, you know, I was hearing stories that they were willing to share with me. I think part of it was just they were happy to have somebody that was willing to listen, and I wasn't asking anything from them. I didn't have a notepad. I was just a young person, and then not such a young person, who wanted to hear what they had to say, and they were willing to talk to me. I wasn't asking for anything more than they were willing to give me whenever they were willing to give it to me. And there are wonderful groups, you know, ladies auxiliaries that do things like knit afghans and, and booties and things like that that means so much to these guys. So it's really important not to overlook the ones that can't get to the VFW or the, the Elks Lodge, and, um, you know, even a bar, local bar, things like that. 
coming at it from <laughs> the librarian and archivist perspective, I wanted to add, I work for the New York Historical Society, so we've got military records dating back to the Revolutionary War, and these are some of the collections that get used the most frequently at our library. It's very strong collections in Revolutionary War, Civil War. For us, World War I and World War II are, are very recent, actually. But two years ago, we had an incredible... I, so I'm in a research library within uh, the New York Historical Society, which is the oldest museum in the city of New York. And we had a, an amazing exhibit on World War II. And instead of just sort of isolating it to one small exhibit area, we just kind of took over the museum. And what was important to us, because it was also 20th century, and a lot of times our exhibits are not outdated, but they didn't deal with <laughs> modern history. Our gift shop for the entire run of that exhibit played wonderful 1940s music. The exhibit itself throughout the exhibit, you could hear it quietly. And what was also important to us is not to just incorporate materials from our collections that were from military members, but also pieces of society. We had children's roller skates next to a helmet, not to downplay one or the other, but to really show how war affects us in a social, uh, you know, and media as well, just socially, anthropologically, you know, um, economically, it, the whole exhibit just featured everything you could think of, and we captured an audience that we didn't even know we had, and while the exhibit was going on, and still two years later, we're getting contacts from people all over the country that had visited that exhibit and are now donating their collections to us. So it's, I'm, I'm not putting that out there as like a marketing idea by any means, but think about who your audience is. And also just back to the, let's not forget the ones that can't make their way to you. That was it. You know, I'm a, I have a, a great advantage in this area uh, over, I, I think, a lot of folks because this is what I do. I, I do military history every day, and I, I've done it for 24 years. Um, and uh, you know, I mentioned my father-in-law earlier, and my father-in-law hadn't talked about his Vietnam experience. Uh, after he was there in 67, 68 as a Marine, uh, my wife's, you know... <laughs> Well, I, I, I got to give you this example. When my then fiance and I went up to visit her folks on Father's Day, um, they live on a ridgetop outside of Manassas, Virginia. And so I made enchiladas. Right? I'm going to impress these potential in-laws. I, you know, I made this big pan of enchiladas, and, and I think they turned out really great, as I recall. Like 30 years ago. Um, so we were getting ready to leave, and we were standing out by the cars, and my wife and her sister, who had come with us up from Richmond, uh, they were talking to their mom and dad, and I, 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 I did camping and, you know, things like that, so I, I didn't mind. I liked being outside, but I finally got tired of standing there and waiting, 
And so I did a thing, and, and some of you may not be able to see what I do, but I'm going to come out here for a second. I'll show anyone who wants to see later, I'll show you. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, my wife came up to me. She said, all right, let's go. Let's go. And I was like, oh, okay. And her sister, like, they're, they're like, they couldn't get me in the car fast enough. And I said goodbye to her folks. And her dad was just, he didn't say anything, just gave me a look. And as soon as we drove and we pulled out of their driveway, my wife and her sister both said, what was that you were doing? What, what was that thing you were doing in, next to the car? I said, well, I, I don't know. I was just crouching down for a minute, you know, and, and kind of resting my legs. Jeez, when you did that, Dad turned around to look at us, and he said, you know, the last time I saw you do that was a goddamn VC prisoner. And you know, if you look at, again, photos of people in Vietnam, and, you know, and, and people who don't have chairs, you know, that, that's the way they, they sit, right? That, that's how they crouch down. And, and you know, my father-in-law, <laughs> it took several years really to move past that, that incident, which I never, well, I brought it up with him maybe 15 years later, and he just kind of laughed about it. Um, but the, the way, you know, my wife's only, other than that, my wife's only experience with him discussing the war, uh, <laughs> was, uh, When one of her, when her sister got a cut in like 1970, <laughs> so her sister got a cut in 1972, and her dad started screaming for a corpsman. And so the way I, and again. I have this great advantage because this is what I do for a living. The way I started engaging him on the topic was we were remaking a figure that was in our exhibit up in Madison uh, at the Veterans Museum. It was a figure of a Marine, and we were trying. We I didn't I wasn't happy with the look of him and the, the way that the, the the people who had designed the figures had costumed him. And I thought, well, you know, I want to get an accurate appearance here, so I started calling my father-in-law up. I'd say, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing this Marine Corps figure. And, and can you tell me, you know, how did you wear your boots? Did you do anything to your boots? Did you do anything peculiar? And he'd say, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll think about it. And he'd call me back a day later and say, you know, we used to put one of our dog tags into the lace of one of our boots so that if, you know, we got blown apart, we had two different chances of the parts being identified because we had one dog tag around our neck and one attached to one of our legs. And I had those engagements, and it took about, you no, know, probably three or four months of those types of discussions. Uh, and, and now he, you know, he's pretty open and able to discuss the war. I mean, it's not something that he, you know, goes out and talks about on a regular basis, but it, it's something that, that there's not a challenge there, and it, it's really helped to open him up quite a bit. But again, like I said, I have a, a tremendous advantage to be able to do that because it's what I do for a living. So, hmm? okay, is it all right? Well, thank you all very much for coming. We appreciate it. We're glad you came. If you you got on the list, terrific. If you want to add your name or a card, you can still do that. <laughs>